please turn in your copy of the scripture to the epistle of Paul to the Romans, to the church in Rome. We'll be reading the closing verses of chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 25 and read down through verse 36 in just a moment. Again, our scripture reading is Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. Now, Reformed people know it. Non-Reformed people know it. And many non-Christians know it. I'm talking about the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is a fine summary of what the scripture is all about. And it makes a fine slogan. You could put it on a bumper sticker. It could be on someone's bumper this morning, for all that I know. But how do we keep that from being merely a slogan? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to help us with this morning. How is it that that great question and answer can be the very testimony of our lives. So give thought to that as we turn to God's word. And before we read, let's ask his help again in prayer. Our Father, this is your word. And we would bow in reverence before it. These are not the words of men, but men spoke as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us expectation that we would receive and gather every word that proceeds from your lips. We pray that you would give us not only the desire to receive them and understand them, but to live in accordance with them by the help of your grace and to the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hear now God's word beginning at Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
all the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thus far, God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing on it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There it is. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. But we see that that grand testimony comes at the end of 11 chapters. It is a fitting conclusion, a fitting end to a long argument. You may have heard this letter compared to a road, the Romans' road. And it was a Swiss commentator who described the Apostle Paul in the course of this letter as a person climbing the Alps. And and he has come to the summit. And he describes the Apostle Paul as turning around and looking over the summit. And he says, depths are at his feet. Waves of light illumine them. And there's an immense horizon that spreads before the eye. And Paul is struck with awe. He has been surveying God and his works of mercy to sinners. And he turns round from that summit. And this is how he responds. Mark Twain, who had climbed the glaciers of the Alps, said that a man who keeps company with those glaciers comes to feel tolerably insignificant by and by. You see, Paul is not filled with grand thoughts of himself from this summit. He is filled with grand thoughts of his God. And those thoughts reach deep in his soul. Look at the first word of verse 33. Oh, he is impassioned. And what is it that brings Paul to such an impassioned declaration? It is the depth of God. He can look down, down, down. He cannot see the bottom. And what are the depths of God that stand before the Apostle Paul? And there there are two things. There is, you see, in verse 33, in the first place, the riches of God. What are the riches of God? This is a word that Paul has been using over and over through this letter. And it always refers to the riches of God's mercy to sinners. You see that in chapter 10 at verse 12. God bestows his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our God is rich in mercy. 
He has poured out riches of mercy upon his people. And then there's wisdom and knowledge, and these two go together. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 2 at verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you see now the connection. Riches speak to what God has done to save his people in history, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And wisdom and knowledge is what God has done to plan and execute that great work. He has conceived our salvation from before the foundation of the world. And praise be, he has brought it to pass. And then Paul, in the verses that follow, he ponders the wisdom of God. He ponders the works of God. And then he comes to ascribe all glory to God. What is glory? It is the excellence of God. It is the worth of God. And to glorify God is to tell it out. It is to declare to the world with our lips and our lives, with our thoughts and our behaviors. What a great God we serve. And so as Paul has been pondering what God has done to save sinners in Jesus Christ, the truth has taken root. And he has erupted in praise. His affections are stirred. And he declares the glory of God And we get to witness it. But you know, the wonderful thing is we don't simply look as disinterested spectators. Paul shows us exactly how to do the same thing in our own lives. So I want you to trace with me the steps of the apostle. How do we glorify God as the apostle Paul glorified God, as your God would have you glorify him? And so I want to look at the two things that stir Paul to wonder and praise. The wisdom of God and the works of God. Look with me from this scripture at those two things. In the first place, it is the wisdom of God that draws out this great word of praise. That's Paul's ongoing meditation. Look again in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. Judgments speak to God's plan and purposes in salvation. And he says they're unsearchable. You can't comprehend them. And then verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God has all wisdom in himself. He lacks nothing. So what is this wisdom? Why should it stir us to praise and glorify God? I want you to see three things about this wisdom from this scripture. In the first place, it is a revealed wisdom. What wisdom is it that Paul admires? It is the wisdom that has imprinted itself on these 11 chapters in Romans. It is the wisdom of God in saving sinners 
through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that wisdom has proceeded in one direction only. It has come from God, and it has come to human beings. Never the reverse. God doesn't keep focus groups. He doesn't have a suggestion box outside his office. Just during the break between the services, I got an email from the airline that brought me here from Jackson. It was a customer satisfaction survey. I have never received a customer satisfaction survey from the Almighty God, and I never will. God doesn't need my wisdom. Did you notice in verse 34 where this comes from? Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor. This comes from the great 40th chapter of Isaiah. And God is telling his people through his servant, the prophet, some hard things. You're going to be led into exile, into Babylon. You're going to be taken from the land. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. And then in the course of that prophecy, God discloses a greater work yet to come. Because you see, our deepest problem is not captivity to the Babylonians. It is captivity to sin and death. And God's going to raise up a servant, his own son. And he's going to die on the cross and he's going to free us from captivity to our sins. And Isaiah says, who has believed our report? And Paul had the privilege of announcing this great gospel. This gospel, chapter 1, verse 17, is revealed from God to faith. It comes from the mind of God to undeserving sinners. You're not going to find this good news by looking deep within your heart. You're not going to find this good news by consulting with universities or think tanks or labs. It's only going to come from God speaking in the Scripture. It is a revealed wisdom, but it is at the same time an incomprehensible wisdom. You see, verse 33, there is depth to it. It is, verse 34, unsearchable. Once God speaks, you will never say, I get it through and through, let's move on. You may apprehend it, you will never comprehend it. You remember Job, and he's struggling with what God is doing in his life. And then finally, at the end of that book, beginning in chapter 38, God speaks out of the whirlwind. He says, Job, come here, we're going to take a little tour. And he says, Job, here's the weather, here's the stars, you don't understand them. Job, here's the ostrich, here's Leviathan, here's Behemoth, and you don't understand them either. And Job, if you don't understand these things, how do you presume to understand my ways with you? And you know God finds ways to continue to confound human wisdom. In 1798, the British 
scientific community in London was thrown into turmoil. Specimen had arrived from Australia. And a number of learned scientists were convinced that a cruel hoax had been perpetrated on them by the colonists. Here was this animal. Some were persuaded had been stapled together because it had the bill of a duck and the body of a beaver, and it was said to lay eggs. Well, they soon discovered this was no hoax. This was the first duck-billed platypus discovered by Western man. It must have been a humbling, it should have been a humbling experience for learned men and women. And if that's true in creation, how much more redemption? So it is revealed, it is incomprehensible, and it is Christ-centered. This wisdom finds its focus on the cross of Calvary. Where do we see that in the scripture? Look back at verse 32. This is the verse that launches the word of praise. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And you and I know that God's mercies flow in one channel and one channel only, and that is through Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel and believed on to salvation. As Paul told the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. How is the cross the wisdom of God? Here, here are sinners, a mass of sinners and rebels on planet earth. And there's nothing in us to commend us to God. Taken by ourselves, we're, we're loathsome, we're ugly before the holy gaze of this God. We deserve only to be consumed and condemned and punished forever for our sin. But what does God do? In mercy, he sends his own son and he puts him on a cross And Jesus Christ, he bears the curse that the likes of you and I deserve. And he bears the shame. And he turns away the wrath of God from deserving sinners. So that clothed in his righteousness and received through faith, we stand righteous in the very presence of God. That's the wisdom of God. And then did you notice in verses 30 and 31... Here are God's own covenant people, and they have turned their back on Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know, this was the way God was going to bring Gentiles, most of us in this room, Gentiles to himself in Christ. And then he goes on to say that through the mercy you have received Gentiles, God in some way will show mercy to the Jew. And Paul falls to his knees and he bows and he praises the all-wise God. But how does this apply to us this morning? In the first place, learn this. You know, there, there are a lot of ideas about God in circulation. On TV, on social media, in books, in various religions. But here is the true and living God speaking about himself. And we give ear because he speaks truth. We don't go elsewhere. And this God is all-knowing 
and all-wise. The future is not uncertain to him. He is never taken by surprise. Prophecy isn't some educated guess. Do you know who this God is? And as importantly, do you live before this God who is all-wise? You remember all the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, they knew this God. And what was the hook of the tempter? What was the hook that brought our first parents down? Eve, Adam, you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. And they said, that sounds pretty good. And the whole message of Scripture is you are not like God, and that is good news. And that is never put to the test more than when you are in crisis, when you are in sorrow, when you are perplexed and you don't understand what God is doing in your life. And you know, that's just where Paul is. How did chapter 9 begin? He says, I'm in unceasing anguish. I'm in great sorrow. I have kinsmen who are perishing because they have turned their backs to Jesus Christ. I could wish myself accursed. And then Paul, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he he begins to track and trace and pen the wisdom and ways of God. He doesn't get all his questions answered. But he has enough. He has his God. He knows he's wise. And he falls down to worship. Because the apostle knows, even if he doesn't have all his questions answered, that the wisdom that appointed this hard thing is the very wisdom that planned and purposed and accomplished his salvation. And that's enough. And so he'll leave the details to God and he'll fall down and worship. Friends, how is it with you? Are you someplace and you have questions and you can't get them answered? You may never get them answered. And you don't understand. The scripture tells you, look to this wise God through Jesus Christ. Trust him through faith in his son. And you may not know the details, but you know enough to serve and to worship and to rest and to glorify this God. Will you do that? Well, Paul is stirred not only by a sense of the wisdom of God, he is stirred by the works of God. What it is this wisdom has brought into being. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of God. And the apostle says, these these riches are beyond us. And they're beyond us in two ways. In the first place, verse 33, they are beyond tracing. How inscrutable his ways. God's paths, his movements, his works in history. You can't trace them. You can't track them. 
my short tenure as a Boy Scout. Our Scoutmaster told us we were going to be going on a hike. We were going to go to the Appalachian Trail and hike 20-some-odd miles. I had never done a hike like that before. Kid from the suburbs, I thought it would be fine. And I assumed that the Appalachian Trail would be a wide paved boulevard, an easy grade with, with concessions. And lo and behold, they dropped us in the woods. And they said, start working, walking. And, and you had to look for these marks, these colored marks on the trees and the bark, or you'd be off the trail. You'd be wandering into the valleys and the mountains. But at least you could follow the trail. You can't follow God's trail. What is it that makes his works beyond tracing? Well, we get a clue in verse 35 when Paul returns to adore the works of God. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God has given riches upon riches upon riches to his people. And we'll never give him anything that will pay him in kind. God will never write you or me and I owe you. And that has been the glorious gospel theme of this letter. He has told us in chapter 11, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Not for anything in us, not according to works. God has set his electing love on us in mercy. And we have been justified by grace. We have been declared righteous by grace. Forgiven and accepted by grace. Chapter 3, verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're being renewed by grace. Chapter 6, verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everything in between. How does Paul put it in Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And what greater thing could God do? how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And how does Paul sum it up? Verse 32, he has mercy on all kinds of people. So as we close, how does this apply to us? I'm just getting to know some of you, but I can say something about all of you. You are all debtors. You are all in debt. And I'm not talking about your mortgages. I'm not talking about your car notes. And I'm not talking about your credit card statements. I'm talking about your relationship with God himself. And you can be indebted to God, you know, in different ways. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indebted to him as your judge. You sin, you violate his law, you offend him, and you must pay the penalty. And there will come a day when you die, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when you must give an account and pay the penalty of eternal destruction. But the good news of this letter, 
is that Jesus Christ came into this world to live the life that sinners didn't, to die the death that sinners deserved, and to rise gloriously, to show mercy to the undeserving. And he bids you come, trust in him, turn your back to sin, turn your face to the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive riches upon riches. They're free on offer. They're free for the taking. And begin to live. And if you do, or if you have, you know you're a debtor in another way. How do we sing a a debtor to mercy alone? So here's the question. How do you repay the debt you can't repay? What do you do? Well, here's the answer in verse 36. You open your mouth and you glorify God. And then read on into chapter 12. With your mind transformed, with a body consecrated to God as living sacrifice, you serve this God. You declare, you show what a great God you serve. What a wise God. What a merciful God. What a holy God I serve. And you do that not just on Sunday morning. You do it in the office tomorrow morning. You'll do it at home when you're getting your kids ready for school. You'll do it next weekend when you're visiting your grandchildren. You'll do it at a cookout with your neighbors. You'll do it when you're feeling well. You'll do it when you're feeling awful. You're doing it when you're single or when you're married. Wherever God has set you, Christian, you may think it's insignificant, but God has set you there to glorify him. That's your calling. And that's how you repay the debt. You'll never repay. You know, people said a lot of things about the Apostle Paul in his life. And a lot of them weren't very good. But you know, one thing that Paul was never called was a shrinking violet, a wimp. Paul was a man of grit and gumption. What gave him, what gives Christians backbone to face hard things, uncertainties? Well, here it is. You see, Paul knew His life was encased in mercy, past, present, and future. Paul knew that the most important things had been settled in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom he believed and trusted and served. And because of that, and because it was all mercy, not because of anything he had done, he could face the uncertainties B.B. Warfield was a renowned Presbyterian pastor, theologian in the early 20th century. He tells a story of a western city in the days of the old Wild West, and it was convulsed in violence and upheaval. And things got so bad that the United States Army had to dispatch a unit to restore order. And the unit got there, and things were as bad as they had been told. And there was one officer, and he was standing there 
calmly, firmly, watching the mayhem before him, and he sees one man who is moving with poise and purpose, and he's not joining in the mayhem. And this man sees the officer, and he walks towards him. This stranger walks towards the officer, and he takes his finger, and he starts poking his chest. And he says, what is the chief end of man? And the officer responds to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the stranger said, by the looks of you, sir, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy. And the officer said, sir, I was thinking the same thing about you. (laughs) Friends, it's this truth that we glorify God for his wisdom and works that gives us the strength to press on in hard places, in uncertain places. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What a a conclusion. What, what What a slogan. But don't let it be just that. This is this is a way of life. And not just for the Apostle Paul, and not just for pastors and elders, it's for all Christians. And the Apostle says, come, come join me as we live for the glory of Jesus Christ. What a grand thing. Have you accepted the Savior's call to live to the glory of this great Savior? Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, how we praise you. We are creatures whom you don't need. And we are sinners by nature, worthy only to be cast off. But in mercy, rich mercy, at the cost of your own son, you have redeemed us and you have brought us near and you have called us to live, to tell out your glory with all that we are and in every place that you set us. Father, help us as we turn our minds to your mercies in Jesus Christ to dedicate ourselves, whether for the first time or anew, to this great calling and to know the strength and the assurance and the comfort that comes with it. Help us to tell out what a great God you are. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.